Welcome to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. Our mission is to connect the past and the present NICU mom by bringing them out of isolation and into a sisterhood of women who can stand alongside each other as we heal and grow both in and out of the NICU. Our hope is that through interviews with trauma-informed medical and maternal mental health experts and vulnerable stories from NICU mamas themselves, that you would feel connected to the Dear NICU Mama Sisterhood around the world. So whether your NICU journey was 50 years ago or whether you find yourself in the NICU today, we hope that this podcast reminds you that you are not alone. Hi, friends, and welcome back to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. It's your host, Martha and Ashley. Ashley, I feel like it's been forever since we talked. Just kidding. We just did recorded one of these moments ago. It's a back-to-back episode day for us. It is. I'm feeling just uh, energetic, lively, ready to go from our last conversation. Me too. And, and very excited about our new guest for, for this week's episode. Yes. You know, on the podcast, sometimes we have the opportunity to interview moms who've had NICU stays to hear about their journeys, to hear about how parents navigate the NICU and beyond. And then sometimes we have the unique opportunity to interview incredible providers in the fields of neonatology and obstetrics and mental health. And today we have a very special guest because it's our first male provider that we've ever had. I think only maybe the third or fourth non-female identifying guest we've had on the podcast ever. So welcome to Dr. Eric Ricklin. We're so happy that you're here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so exciting to, to speak about everything. Ash, you and Dr. Ricklin have a, a special connection. I'd love if you could touch, touch yes, on here. Yes, we do. So um, about a year ago, I get this email from my photography account from Eric and Kayla. And I immediately fell in love with them. I was like, I want to shoot this couple's wedding, please. So they miraculously booked us to shoot their wedding. We go to their engagement session and we're talking about what they do for work. And Eric starts talking about his practice. And I kid you not, I like I remember setting down my bag and looking at you and being like, you do what? <laughs> and so instantly told him about Dear Nikki Mama and what we do. And Loki was like, I'd love to have you on the podcast sometime and let that be. And then I kid you not, on the way home, I called Martha and I was uh-huh. like, we to have him on the podcast his specialty and his practice is amazing and so fast forward to today it's officially happening i get to shoot their wedding in a couple of weeks which i can't wait and so eric we're we're just truly really excited it's been a long time coming to to have you on here and so thank you so much for making time absolutely and i'm glad we could bring this to fruition the the dream yeah. is real now <laughs> real yes well and i kind of mentioned it before we started recording but we were reading through your bio and there's a lot packed into this eric you are a very distinguished um, person you have a lot of experience both professionally but also in your own personal life with this field and so would you be willing to just introduce yourself tell us a little bit about your practice and um, who is eric ricklin sure yeah so uh, I recently finished my PhD in clinical psychology, so Ooh. I guess I'm recently. <laughs> Thank you. It feels weird to call myself doctor. I'm not really ready for that <laughs> yet, but that's what they tell me. 
Um, and so I specialize in working with patients and families who have medical conditions and are navigating the journey of both hospital stage and medical procedures, but also coping and adjusting post um, medical procedures and, and hospital stays. Um, I just finished my internship at the UCLA Stress Trauma Resilience Clinic, which was also associated with the Family Development Program, uh, or FDP, which is part of the NICU at UCLA, where I work with um, parents and couples who had babies in the NICU. Um, and I will be starting my postdoctoral fellowship at the Children's Hospital Los Angeles, working with kids and parents and families who are navigating medical and mental health concerns. Um, and so I, you know, professionally, that's me. But personally, I, um, part of me is that I was born with a craniofacial condition, which is a facial difference. And I was in and out of hospitals my entire um, early childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood. Um, so I really feel as though this, I have a unique combination of both the professional and personal experience that I try to uh, blend with the work that I do moving forward. Yeah. Well, and to be totally transparent, Eric, when you told me about your practice, I naively didn't even know that these types of resources existed. And so when you shared more about what you do, I just like took a breath of relief and fresh air because I was like, wow, I'm so grateful that there are providers who are dedicating their life to serving these patients and families so well and really dedicating their work to making sure that they have adequate resources to process these, you know, oftentimes traumatic experiences and and very like uh, different childhoods than they envisioned, both for the kids themselves and also for their parents. And so thank you so much for the work that you do and, and for shedding a light on this because I didn't know that these resources were available. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been my pleasure. I mean, I think working with the families is just, it's rewarding because it's so non-available in so many different places. And I think UCLA specifically has done a great job providing that support. Um, It's Mm -hmm. not always for everyone. And some people really do utilize it. For some people, it's a little hard to get into it eventually. But I think just having that option and the opportunity to to speak with someone, like you said, to learn about resources for whatever they are ready, um, I Mm -hmm. think can do wonders for their their journey. Yeah. Hmm. So how, you know, Eric, fresh-eyed out of undergrad, you have your, you know, postgraduate and graduate work ahead of you. How did you kind of decide or land on the specialty in the area of research and focus that you did? Yeah. So um, I always knew that I wanted to get back to the medical population. Um, I decided at an early age that they've done so much for me that I would love to help similar folks go through similar journeys. Um, I initially thought I wanted to be a biomedical engineer at one point and make medical devices, but I asked quickly... you, that was like number one choice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's a good field. Super awesome. <laughs> uh, realized I don't like physics, which is half the battle. So I was like, uh, this is not for me, but, uh, but also really wanted to do more direct work. And I think that was more behind the scenes. And I really wanted to help people directly. Uh, that's where I came and found and found and fell in love with psychology and um, mm-hmm. never looked back since uh, since joining that field. Mm-hmm. Well, and your experience is so unique in that you've been a firsthand participant, you know, having your child your childhood be spent in hospitals and being a very frequent flyer, if you will, <laughs> of going to a hospital. And so it's really an honor to get to ask you some personal questions too about what mm-hmm. it was like because I know many of our NICU families, their kids are still quite young 
And, you know, they're still in like those early stages of development and and things like that. And so to be able to talk with somebody who's an adult who they, you know, we can ask some of those personal questions is really, is really helpful. And so we're wondering if you'd be willing to share just a little bit about your personal experience of being a child that spent a lot of time in the hospital and, and how has it shaped who you are today? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I always considered the hospital one of my second or third home, really, because I spent mm. so much time there. Um, it would be weeks, days, sometimes, you know, month at most, but like it would be really a lot of time spent. Um, partially because I just had such um, unique condition that required a lot of facial reconstructive and jaw surgeries that required a lot of like post-surgery recovery. Um, and I think, you know, I was very fortunate to have such a caring and loving family to be there through, throughout the journey. Um, and I think having that, having providers who really talked to me for me and tried to explain the situation was really, really helpful. So I didn't feel like I was just a fly on the wall, but rather right. involved in the care. Um, and I think, you know, being able to have that sort of whole, really the whole life where it felt just so comfortable is really the best part and the most easiest way to transition for me um you know without that doesn't go without having said that there's like been a lot of outcomes that have been less enjoyable because of my experience you know i think a lot of anxiety some potential medical trauma and confidence concerns and i think you know that's mitigated by some of the work you know that i try to do myself and that i try to provide by, to others um, but at the same time, you know, it's also taught me a lot about resilience and being able to mm-hmm. overcome some of the challenges, especially going through multiple visits or hospital stays or appointments, um, as well as having this compassion for understanding what it is to be accepting of where you are, um, mm-hmm. pro- present in the moment, but then also to be able to then move forward and, you know, get ready to take on whatever it is next. Um, it's mm. certainly a journey and there's a lot of speed bumps along the way, but as long as you keep your hands on the steering wheel, I always like to say, I think you're the best way to navigate it. Hmm. Your family must be so proud of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. They, they do well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're okay. You're, you're like, yeah, they should be. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. They're, they're, they're great. They, they, uh, yeah. they're my rock. I mean, I, I, I really mm. think like that's the biggest thing that I can always, that I always try to instill in folks is just like be there, be able to be present. And I know it's not easy for a lot of families, especially if it's like a single family or if it's like older parents who may not be available to take off work or have the resources. But I always like to say, even if there's someone who could be there in the process, Mm -hmm. if you're, you know, if your baby's in the NICU or if your child's in the NICU to be able to provide like a sibling or another family member or a friend or even a neighbor, just to be able to like continuously have that sort of guidance. So they know it's as familiar as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some examples, you know, from your experience of ways that providers, your loved ones, your family, your support system was able to kind of fill that gap for you and buffer your childhood a little bit? Obviously, we've probably come, you know, t- tons and tons farther than we were even back in the 90s and the 2000s. Um in terms of how we treat, you know, medical trauma and how we approach it from a pediatric perspective. But what are some of the tangible ways that you felt loved on and protected? Yeah, I think like tangibly, I would say, you know, just normalizing the experience as much as possible. So 
bringing toys or bringing movies or bringing video games or books or Legos. I was a huge Lego nerd. Um, so having like things that I knew from my home to bring there to make it feel more like a nurturing and loving environment. Um, hospitals can be pretty cold. I mean, not to, you know, right. you know, make fun of any of the like architectural standings or things about the hospitals, <laughs> but like, it could no, be... we can make fun of them. The yeah. hospital buildings can take it. <laughs> they, they, that's they have enough money. They can hang with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, when I've gone into rooms with patients and, you know, or into NICUs and sometimes, you know, it's just a very cold and gray and sort of dreary. And so the ones that I feel like bring the most energy in life are the ones that like decorate it, that make it feel very comfortable, feel like nothing has changed or just in a different setting, but they still have that love and compassion and family oriented sort of vibe mm -hmm. together. Um, I think just more specifically in terms of like, I guess, energy wise, or just like, um, I guess in terms of like non-tangible, but things that they've definitely done is, you know, I think just being able to provide that confidence and that resilience as well. Um, I think in terms of in, in the line of normalizing, being able to acknowledge that this is a challenging situation, but that there's, mm. this isn't everything that defines who you are. And I think mm. that was really instilled in me at an early age that, Yes, I had multiple visits and I was there for a very long portion of my life, but there was still another like two thirds of my life at least where I was doing other things that made me more of a typical kid or adolescent. And I think right. that's always a good reminder, something to look forward to when, especially when it feels like this isn't going to end and there's no light at the end of the tunnel, but to have that hope and that, um, that sort of confidence that there will be, you know, the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And was there ever like a time where, or like a way that that message was delivered to you by like a loved one or a fan member where it like meant the most to you? You know, like what were some ways that your family communicated that to you? Was it how they said it? Was it how they were present? I mean, what were some ways that you felt that? Definitely. I think, uh, I think a combination, I think presence, right? Like my parents, my parents were divorced. And so um, it was, I imagine, very hard for them to like, have to go co-parent while also navigating that. Um, right. But I think they did a really good job of kind of taking turns and always being there. Mm -hmm. So their presence was always felt because my dad would stay overnight and my mom would come during the day. And so I had both and that was great. And then in terms of their words, I think just like making sure I realized I could be a typical kid, like allowing mm -hmm. me to do things like play soccer, or play, you know, football, even though, my parents didn't love when I play football or certain things like that uh, or some of the more dangerous, dangerous sports. Um, but allowing me to then do it and not really put any limitations on it. I think they both were really mm. um, insistent on doing that and not putting any sort of um, boundaries or things that or telling me I can't do something. Um, and, sure. you know, I think just like always just picking me up. I, I think they just constantly shared that they were proud of me and ready for me to mm. take on the world. And so, Hearing that consistently, I think, was, was helpful, which I know is not always, um, for, you know, people aren't always fortunate to have that, but it's helpful. Yeah. But also encouraging for our moms listening that your presence and your words of love mm -hmm. do matter. Yeah. You know, sometimes it feels like you're, you're saying it and you're like, I hope they're hearing this. I hope that they feel my presence. But then to talk with someone who experienced that firsthand and be able to say, no, it made all the difference. You know, that's that's revolutionary for so many of us listening of that your presence and your love is enough. It matters. So I think that's beautiful. Absolutely. And I find that it's so hard too sometimes, especially for parents in the NICU to feel that connection and to feel like kind of like what you're saying, to feel like there's this understanding. But 
they even though they may not always share that or they may not always show that i mean it could be a baby it could be like a kid who's just like i don't want to talk to you i don't really want to hear this but they still know it and even just mm. saying it and making it out there it still allows the baby the child whoever it may be to connect with that and that is probably the yeah. most important piece right yeah I don't know about you, Ash, but I have, I was just going to say, I don't know about you, but I have anxiety. Oh, I have that too. Yeah. yeah. But I, <laughs> raise your hand if you have anxiety. Hello. Right. Um, particularly, I have lots of intrusive thoughts and kind of ongoing worries about the effect of medical trauma on my kiddos and um, how it will come to fruition or the, the the way it might affect who they are and their life in the future. I'm sure that that is something common that we that we hear a lot from our audience. What would you say to um, encourage or kind of a misconception that might surround kids who have lots of medical complex complexities or ongoing hospital stays to help kind of assuage those fears? Yeah. Well, I think um, like early on, one of the biggest things you can do to help sort of mitigate medical trauma and anxiety is by allowing um, the kid or even if the baby, even the baby, just having them present, just be part of the journey. And so what that means to me is like being able to invite them to ask questions, being able to make sure the providers are talking to them just as much as the parents, if not more to the kiddo or the, or the baby. So that way everyone's involved and understands what's going to happen. I think one of the biggest um, challenges or the biggest you know, risk factors for medical trauma is this like this fear of the unknown or this mm -hmm. like inability to really understand what's going to happen because there's this sort of misconception that, oh, we need to protect our kid, we need to protect our baby, they shouldn't hear some of the challenges that are coming in. But what happens is that that sort of mitigates or impacts some of the expectations that they might be feeling. Mm -hmm. And so they might think, oh, this is, especially if someone going through multiple procedures, they might think, oh, this is the last one, this is it. And then to have that next one come up and be like, wait, I didn't know that. I thought there was gonna be more can really induce anxiety and medical trauma. So that's why it's always important to have folks be able to like write down questions beforehand, allow them to ask the questions directly if, they, if they're old enough to, of course, and just or just be in the room and present so they can at least hear. Um, and really promote, I strongly always recommend promoting doctors or providers to talk directly to the kiddo. Um, because I think a lot of times they're talking to the parents and it makes it feel like the kid's not important when in reality they're the ones mm. going through a lot of it. Right, yeah. I had never thought of that before, so I will write that down. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, you know, when we've talked as a team because many of our kiddos are still like three and under or they're starting to get to those ages where they're starting to begin to ask questions mm -hmm. about their birth story or, you know, um, why are we going to the doctor again? Or what is this? And different things. And so we're kind of in this new stage of parenting of like, trying to also like walk through these questions with our children. And so, you know, what are some ways that we can prepare for those questions well and really access maybe some of the resources that you're aware of, of, okay, this is how I talk to my child about medical trauma or, you know, medical procedures or their birth story, or, you know, they see pictures of themselves and they're like, why did I have all those wires? Or, you know, what is this? And so do you have any insight on how to have some of those conversations as our kids get older and more curious? Yeah. I think one of the biggest resources that I always recommend to folks, it's called the National Child Traumatic Stress Network or the NCTSN. 
Um, it's ncstn.org. Um, and it's a really great resource for medical trauma, for patients, for providers, for families. Um, and it provides a lot of handouts to kind of manage medical trauma, sort of stuff I'm talking about in terms of questions, preparing, sort of responding to inquiries by anyone. Um, but it also just has a lot of information on trauma-informed care. Um, so that's one that I really highly recommend, especially for those who are curious about medical trauma. Um, and then I think it just in terms of how to respond to some of the kids, I think just thinking about ways that are developmentally appropriate for them, but then also being able to um, respond in an open and honest way that they could then hear. If they have more questions, because we know kids are always going to have questions, I think, you know, <laughs> referring to the, to the website could be helpful or just being able to like think about it, have an open discussion with them as much as possible. That's so interesting. I, my daughter had a hospital stay a year ago and I've just occurred to me, I just remembered, but there was this like incredible handout and it had, it was all about developmentally appropriate per age group, different ways or different ways you could talk about what the experience was. And some, you know, I don't know if it was child life, who knows? I feel this is the other thing. People come in and out of the rooms, you know, but they, um, they walked through, you know, here's three different ways that you could talk about it. And having those talking points was so helpful. And, um, uh, now I know I need to go dig that up because my daughter is <laughs> asking questions. Last night she asked me why babies are born without teeth. I did not have an answer. <laughs> so I need to, this is something, you know, I, I, I definitely need to look that up and, and that resource that you mentioned. So Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. And I think that's, a, that's another really important piece too, right? Like the developmental piece. Like people are going to be able to communicate and ask questions in different ways and mm -hmm. just being mindful of that. So for example, like a, you know, a baby might respond in a way that's more behavioral, like crying out or acting out that we can't always address. But then there might be like a two or three-year-old who's starting to ask questions and they can't really have the emotional language to describe it. So mm -hmm. something that could be helpful is like pictures or colors or things that could they could draw or use to allow them to communicate how they're feeling or what the question might be without having words to go along. Whereas someone mm -hmm. older who might be more like, seven, eight, nine, ten, or the schooler age, or even older, might start to have that language and then to be able to understand more from an emotional lens as well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. just having that like kind of knowledge and know that there's gonna be different ways to describe things to different kiddos. Yeah, right. If you are a longtime listener of the Dear Nikki Mama podcast, or you have found yourself enjoying this episode, we would greatly appreciate a review on iTunes. Reviews on Apple and other platforms help other mamas and friends just like you find our podcast, help boost us so that we are more available and accessible to others, and they let us know that you're loving what you're hearing too. So we love to hear the stories that you're connecting with. We love to hear how the episodes resonate with you, and having that review is a great way for us to get a really tangible feel of how this podcast resonates with your heart. So Playing off of that question, then Dr. Ricklin, because <laughs> I'm going to now going to use up the doctor because it's brand new for you. Um, <laughs> but we have a lot of members of our community. There's a lot of intersection between um, ongoing, you know, global disabilities um, that affect communication styles, and a lot of these kiddos are nonverbal or communicate in different ways. Uh, how would you suggest that those families start approaching uh, conversations and communication with those kiddos around medical trauma? It's a great question. Um, 
so I haven't had too, as much experience with nonverbal folk these days, but my I know that there's generally there tends to be resources within different states that can allow for um, like more assistance with some of those. Like for example, like regional center we have in California, um, and um, and I know that that could be helpful in some ways. But I think in terms of like having that conversation and being ready to experience it, I think it's similar to someone who may not be able to experience, express their the words verbally. So perhaps like be able to like draw or like kind of help like with more like art therapy in that way could be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Or music therapy could be really, really powerful in a lot of ways. So finding maybe um, therapies or interventions that could be helpful to sort of express things that necessarily don't rely on um, verbal or written or not written, but verbal or like, you know, expressive in this sense, in the, in the typical sense, I would say. Um, yeah. yeah, I think one fear that a lot of us have in the community whose kiddos do have recurring stays or have ongoing medical appointments or things that maybe just impact childhood is this fear that our children will resent us because mm. we're, t- you know, the ones that bring them to the appointments, we're the ones that make the appointments, you know, different things. And I wonder what words of encouragement you would offer to parents being a child on the other side of this, but also with your practice to kind of just to kind of dampen some of those fears and maybe remove a little bit of that shame and guilt that we feel. Um, Because oftentimes as NICU moms, we tend to take a little bit of that responsibility on ourselves, whether that's we should have, we should have caught this sooner or I should have, you know, if I wouldn't have delivered early, then this wouldn't have happened, you know, all of those different things. And so what hope or encouragement would you offer those families and moms listening that feel those those fears and those those feelings of of oh my gosh am i am i doing this to my child yeah absolutely and those are very very common as you're saying like those are some of the most like the guilt and the shame are some of the most common feelings that i that i that i see happening when i talk to nifty mothers or parents or caregivers um and i think it's it's really hard to navigate because it's so it's a constant feeling, but then also kind of like what you're saying, it's sort of reinvigorated when you have to go back or you're re-experiencing mm-hmm. something or your child might get angry or frustrated with having to deal with it again. Um, so I think, you know, the first thing I always recommend is just compassion and trying to try to manage self-care as much as you can, uh, whether it be just like accepting that the, these are the feelings and that's okay, but then finding things to bring yourself joy or bring yourself care because knowing that these are things that need to be done, but you're doing this for the goodness of your child, not to actually, you know, put them in harm's way, but it's what's needed, uh, which is a work in progress. It's not an easy thing to have that compassion, but to remember that, you know, there is more, this is why you're doing it. Um, and then I think, you know, just know, you know, I don't think this is always the case, but I do think a lot of times, you know, when kids are going through this sort of resentment or sort of this anger or this frustration, it's a lot of times either they're confused or they're not clear with what's happening or they're, it's just, you know, just frustration because I don't want to do this again. And Mm. those feelings are just temporary. And a lot of times, you know, at the end of it or on the other side, kids generally are like, okay, you know what, like my mom, my parent, my dad, whoever it might be, my caregiver really did this for, you know, for me. And they Mm -hmm. tend to, understand have a better understanding so in the moment it could be really challenging and you know throughout the early chat the early portion it could be really difficult to you know overcome some of those but i think just making sure you give yourself that understanding compassion give yourself some self-care when you need to doing things that you enjoy that might take a step away 
normalizing it, maybe join a group. I always say, like to say join a groups um, that also have moms who are also going through it. Just like you're all promoting on this wonderful podcast. I think that is great. Just having that sort of connection and shared experience really could take, you know, go miles in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's say you're a parent or a parent of uh, a kiddo that has an upcoming procedure or stay. You know, I think of our, you know, CHD or heart families and, um, you know, transplant kiddos, anyone who has any sort of breathing assistant, you know, um, lots of trait kiddos that come out of the NICU. So, you know, you have to prepare them ahead of time or, you know, there's upcoming procedures what can you do to support them? You know, what's a good place to start ahead of time to help prepare? Absolutely. I think so navigating expectations is always a good piece. So really understanding what is going to happen, what your possible stay might look like. I mean, bringing things that might be familiar if you're doing a stay, bringing things that could really connect you back to your, your outside world, the outside of the hospital, and really also knowing what's going to happen after. Because mm-hmm. that's another piece is that a lot of times people have expectations that like, either this is, especially for heart transplant, like this is going to cure me, or I'm going to be able to run like 10 miles after I get my new heart, which is, you know, sometimes the case if you get a really good transplant, but a lot of times it's a recovery period and knowing that and knowing that there's going to be a ramp up. So I think Mitigating those, having this understanding of what that looks like will be, could be really helpful. Um, I think also just, you know, having some, like, again, navigating any of these um, cognitive and, um, you know, maybe negative thoughts or feelings about what might happen. So a lot of times there might be like worries and anxiety about that. So being able to do some work around that is always, I always recommend. So um, things like, um, well, I mean, but like therapy can be helpful for that or just like having open dialogue about what those thoughts and feelings might be and really understand are these like realistic thoughts or these thoughts that are just anxiety and whatever they are it's okay to have those thoughts but then to also practice like okay well, what are the other pieces to it what else can I do to prepare or what else can I do to sort of mitigate those negative thoughts or do to um to manage that um and then also, I guess, lastly, you know, like just being able to have good coping skills. I think those are really key, especially just along the lines. So things I recommend are just like deep breathing is really helpful. I'm really big at the mindfulness and meditation could be helpful. Um, grounding techniques, like things that just kind of put you in the moment. Um, there's this really great one called five, four, three, two, one, um, which kind of uses your senses or using things like categories or just describing objects around. Because what it does is a lot of times, especially when you're getting worked up for procedures or worked up for the future, you start to snowball or spiral in a lot of ways. And I think mm-hmm. that happens a lot for folks. Um, they think about one thing and they're like, oh gosh, something else is going to happen. And then this is going to happen and then my child's going to yeah. become X, Y, and Z. But, it, it, but if you're able to sort of slow that down and stop it before the snowball gets too big and overcome to help, um, then it really can kind of break that stress levels and kind of get you back down to, to ground zero. And I, as you've been talking about this, I a question came to mind that kind of reminded me of a piece of my own journey with my son in the NICU is it being probably one of the worst pains of my life was seeing my child in pain. Mm -hmm. and seeing them undergo a procedure or a surgery or seeing them need breathing support. And um, I remember when my son needed 
before his hernia surgery, he would scream in pain. And I, you know, as parents, you just kind of do it, right? You muster up the courage to be there, but it feels very unnatural to see your child in pain and um, as it should, right? But, you know, what encouragement or pieces of wisdom would you give when it's just really hard to be fully present because it just hurts so incredibly bad? I mean, do you have any insight for the parents listening who it just, it rocks them to their core to see their child in pain and yet you want to be strong for your kids and sometimes finding that strength is is really, really hard. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's, it's so hard. I think that it's, and it's, like you said, it's not natural. It's not a natural thing to experience having your kid be in pain and screaming and just so hurt. And that causes you hurt because you are, your kid is a part of you. And so I think mm-hmm. that it makes it, this connection even stronger in so many ways. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that I like to tell folks is sometimes is, is that it's okay to have that. And it's okay to be in that pain and to share that and to acknowledge that because A, it's just a great release. You know, we could put up these, these strong faces and put this together, which is awesome. And it's super, super great because your kid will see that it's okay to, you know, that they're going to get through it. But other times it's okay for them to see you in sort of a more vulnerable place because it allows them mm-hmm. to then be more vulnerable and to know that this is a challenging situation. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was, that I knew what out for my parents growing up is like, I had very two sides of the coin. My dad was very like, no, it's fine. Everything's going to be okay. This is great. This is, you know, what they call like more toxic positivity. And my mom was the other side where it was like, no, we got to worry about this. We have to worry about this. And like finding that middle ground is super, super important. It's really okay mm-hmm. to have that positive attitude and say things are okay. Cause then you're not going to be able to, you're going to think everything's going to go wrong if not. But at the same time, it's also okay to worry and be concerned and have that fear and be really down. And that's just part mm-hmm. of the journey. But then it also shows your kid that that's that it's important to think about those things. It's important to show those right. feelings, express those, and to be able to then process them even more so. Right. Yeah. No, well, that's powerful. And I guess, too, how important or how beneficial is it to have a professional help you walk through you know, some of these conversations, because again, I didn't know that resources like yours existed, but now that I know that it's like, wow, like that will be really helpful as Silas gets older because he'll need yearly cardiology appointments and different things. But to have a professional in the room to help parent and child process or just parent or just child, I mean, how have you seen your work benefit families and, and what has that looked like over the years for you? For sure. Um, I, mean, I will say I'm biased because I'm a psychologist, right. <laughs> so, but I will say that I, I, mean, I think it's incredibly powerful. You know, we've done interventions where it's, you know, parents and kiddos going through and really retelling their story in different ways. So there's one we call like a narrative timeline where the kiddo kind of explains what they've experienced growing up, either with their hospital stays or their doctor's appointments or even outside of the hospital, seeing parents fighting or the stress involved with that indirectly. And then the parents do as well. And then um, both of them share that and kind of understand really what both sides are going through. Because I think one of the pieces that I've noticed and that's a common thread for a lot of families is that they don't always communicate what their side is going through. And they don't know what they've experienced. Either the kid doesn't communicate what they're experiencing to the parents or the parents don't experience 
or the, the parents don't communicate what they experience to the kiddo, but be able to understand that and come to a mutual understanding and realize, okay, it was tough for both of us. We both had this, these stressors when this happened, you had this stressor when this happened, whereas I was stressed when this happened. And it just allows for this really bond to form in a lot of ways. And then they really are able to then overcome it a lot of ways because they realize it's part of their journey, but they shared it together and there's a lot more to it for both of them or all of them. Right. That's such a cool practice. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I could see it being so valuable for so many members of your community because it feels very isolating when you're in the middle of whatever trauma you're experiencing. Uh, And you know it so well from your body, but having pulling it out so it can be a piece of connection between you and your child and your partner and other caregivers seems just invaluable. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I think, you know, even from a young age, folks can do that too. Like kids are very impressionable as we all know. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that they have language, whether it's like drawing or just like kind of expressing it a certain way and be able to understand that at a young age from, from these kiddos can be really, you know, it's really awesome to see too. Just seeing so profound some of them can be, um, even when they don't always have the words. Right. I think probably we all have circumstances where our children, even if they're young or whatever developmental stage they're at, of them having kind of an awareness beyond their years about these things that is um, sometimes more well-managed than adults in their emotions, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, they have a, or, you know, an ability to, to bounce back and understand that maybe more so than we give them credit for, for sure. Well, one, I know we're getting kind of close to the end of our episode here, but one thought that came to mind, and I know this is sometimes more the role of like a child life specialist, but is families who have kiddos that are medically complex, but then have siblings and, um, you know, feeling like compared or feeling jealous or like, how come they don't have to go to the hospital, but I do, or even just wanting to include their siblings in their journey. And, you know, do you have any insight on, on that dynamic and, and, you know, what parents can do or, you know, any insight on that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so at a personal level, uh, I have an older sister who went through a lot of the things you were just describing. So mm-hmm. feeling less than, feeling not atten- not given attention, feeling like, why can't I join? What is going on? Not really being informed. Um, and, I don't, and you see this a lot with siblings. There's a whole research, side of research that looks at children or siblings of children with medical conditions. And it's it's really hard for them, just as hard as it is for the parents sometimes. Right. And, you know, one thing that I think could be really beneficial for parents is to try to find a special time on a consistent basis with those kiddos, with the mm-hmm. siblings, just the siblings, because it's going to be very easy. And I know this isn't always easy for parents because it can be really tired and there's a lot going on, but it can be really easy to just go through the day, go through the, especially if you're in the NICU, to be constantly in the NICU and then come home and like be exhausted. And then I just want like my alone time, which is very needed, or I just want to go to bed, which is also needed. You need sleep. But at the same time, we could then lose sight of some of the other kiddos who are a little older, who still think something's going on, but they're not really sure. And they're not getting that time. So really trying to make an effort, even if it's like 10 or 15 minutes of special playtime or a movie or whatever it may be, something to really connect just the parent or caregiver and the other sibling, which will allow them to really feel that special connection and allow them to really understand, hey, like, even though this is going on with my sibling, my brother, sister, or other sibling, um, they still really care about me and they still want me around and involved. And I think that could really, you know, go a long way. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, that's so good. And I'm, how is your relationship with your sister? Not to put you on the spot, no, yeah. but like, do you feel like it's, it's been cool to be able to talk about that now that you're absolutely. older? Yeah. yeah. We've, we've both done like, you know, we both did a lot of work and I think she's, yeah. I mean, she's probably my closest person in my family now. Aww. And she is just I love incredible. That. Yeah. She's, it was definitely hard. You know, I think like there's also this aspect of like resentment towards the kiddo. And so I think she held that to a certain extent, which is rightfully so, right? Especially if you're not understanding certain things to be like, well, why does, why does he get extension? Like, what's so special right. about him? Um, yeah. And so I think there's anger and, you know, tension a lot of the way. Yeah. But, you know, growing up, we started to understand where each side of the journey mm-hmm. was. And it's kind of going back to what I said. You can understand where that person's coming from and communicate that and are able to sort of, you know, uh, you know, bring awareness to the different experiences. It allows you to then to have more empathy and compassion for them. Yeah. And it allows you to then grow and, you know, move forward in any way. And I think we've done a lot of that. I think that's what I always recommend for folks is to, mm-hmm. you know, try to bring that awareness, try to bring that understanding. Yeah. And, you know, it's a journey, but yeah, it's, there's an end to it at some point. In right. a good way. Not a dog. Yeah, and, right. Not a, right. <laughs> not a end. We're all going to end sometime journey. Yeah. Right. Is she, is she like your best man or something? Is she in the wedding party? She is in the wedding party. She's uh, on the bride's side. So she's uh, a bridesmaid, but she's, you know, a very special bridesmaid. I like to think. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then when you're on the other side, then you can like give her like thumbs up. I'll just walk over and give her like a high five. Yeah. There you go. Ash is really loving all the things I'm going to inspire for this wedding. The photo ideas are great. I didn't think of that one so i really appreciate that well if they do like that parent trap what's that from like the parent trap handshake they will just do that oh yeah <laughs> it's a lot of handshake. choreography but don't need to do okay it. that sounds good so i'll send you the photo list ash of Thanks. all my different ideas i would really appreciate that <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so next week uh we're having a companion episode to this one where we're going to talk with your colleague dr augustina bertone Fingers crossed that I pronounced it correctly. We'll find out next week. Um, But she's your colleague um, from your internship, right, at UCLA. And that is an incredible program. Can you talk a little bit about that program briefly and how families would in the area would access it? Yeah, for sure. So it's part of the Stress, Trauma, and Resilience, or STAR Clinic. It's called the Family Development Program, or FDP. Uh, And what they do is they provide therapy, resources, consultations to parents and families who have babies in the NICU. Um, Augustine is a wonderful resource. She's a therapist there. Um, And they provide either phone consultations, in-person, or um, virtual sessions. And so it's mainly for folks who had babies at the NICU at UCLA. Um, so if you are a parent who had that, then um, just ask your child life specialist or ask your provider in the NICU and they will refer you to the family development program. Um, and then they'll contact you and you'll be able to have um, free sessions. It's all free pro bono. Um, they go through insurance, but if, if for some folks who have no insurance or financial limitations, then they do offer free sessions or they refer out to, um, to other providers in the area as well. That's incredible. What an awesome, awesome thing. Yeah. yeah. So cool. Yeah, but she's <laughs> a rock star. So what I was telling Ash, she's one of my favorite people. So she mm-hmm. will be a wonderful addition mm-hmm. for sure. Well, and for f- families that aren't based in, you know, at 
the UCLA clinic. You know, I know you mentioned a resource that we'll make sure to link in the show notes. Um, do you have any other, you know, recommendations of places to start that we can make sure to link? Definitely. Um, so I have a couple of different other organizations that we generally uh, provide as resources as well. Um, so there's the National Perinatal Association, which um, has a website, nationalperinatal.org, um, and they provide a lot of advocacy and education for parents and families who need perinatal care or have babies in the NICU. Um, and it's a really wonderful organization. They have a ton of different um, resources. Um, there's mm-hmm. also Maternal Mental Health Now, which is another really great resource. Um, it really promotes like well-being and emotional awareness and you know therapeutic services to parents and particularly mothers. Um, who need assistance in that as well. That's a really great one. They also have a wonderful um, training, but they also have also um, a wonderful list of providers in the um, uh, national providers as well. So if you need assistance there, which is great. Um, and then the last one I love, I always love because this is another sort of more mental health, but it's the Postpartum Support International or PSI, yes. which is yep. a great. And I'm sure you've heard of most of these already, but these no, are No, but I'm so, Yeah. <laughs> These are Anytime we can plug these resources, we're like, let's shout them off the rooftops. Like, <laughs> we want moms to access these. So For sure. Um, so cool. And they're all great. And I, I have one more just again for California, but we don't, I mean, it's it's called Our House and it's really great for grief, um, especially because I know, you know, one thing we didn't always mention um, is, you know, for some folks who have babies in the NICU when they pass away or it's unfortunate circumstances, like having that grief, grief resource is super, super helpful. And it's a process, right? It's not one and done. It's a very long standing process. And um, the Our House folks are like incredible at like providing that support uh, for mm-hmm. parents, children, um, you know, siblings, things like that. So I always love to plug them because they really um, have helped a lot of my patients in the past as well. Mm-hmm. And would you say that those resources um, would also apply to like parents looking for resources for their children? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So a lot of them have like just, like especially the trauma network one and the maternal sure. mental health um, and PSI, like they all have like groups and things. some of the, not all of them, but some of the groups, some of them just have handouts of resources. They kind of provider, they help find providers um, that could be specific for children um, as well. Um, especially yeah. like siblings or just younger children. Those are really, yeah. really helpful. Um, and then yeah. psychology today, which is another really good resource, but that's more for psychology services. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This has been so wonderful and informative, and yeah. I ha- now we got to go update our resource library online with a bunch <laughs> of new fantastic ways. And it's just wonderful to hear about someone with lived experience who has mm-hmm. gone on to be a provider that has changing lives, right? Um, being able to be that present provider and provide a level of understanding and strategies and just support for families is is a game changer. So thank mm-hmm. you so much for all of your work. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful journey. Yeah. Well, and what I love about this episode so much is I think sometimes we so badly and right, like this is only natural, but we want to shield our child from any pain and we don't want them to think too much about their up, you know, their childhood, especially experiences in the hospital that might be hard. But I think what this episode has given parents permission to do is to heal alongside your children and to get to be a part of processing that experience with them because that's where that new bond is formed. And so I love that in in a way it's like celebrating your children's unique childhood journey and getting to be a part of it in a really 
unique way. And so I've loved, I've loved that recurring theme throughout this episode for sure. To all of our NICU mamas listening that um, have maybe medically complex kiddos, um, disabled kiddos, or just find themselves in a recurrent hospital stay with their children, we hope that this episode reminded you today that NICU mama, this is not your fault and you are not to blame. And that bonding and having that special relationship in childhood with your child is possible. In fact, it's more than possible. Um, We hope that you are able to take a little bit deeper of a breath tonight, knowing that A, there's resources available to help process this. You don't have to do this alone, but also how resilient your child is. And know that every mountain they've had to climb is because you've been right there next to them. And I'm going to start crying. But your presence and your love is what guides them and moves them. And you should be incredibly proud of the relationship that you will continue to have throughout their lives. So Eric, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for the work that you do, for sharing about your personal life experience, but also for just being a beam of hope for parents everywhere and children everywhere. And uh, mamas, we love you. We love the sisterhood and we love your kiddos and we are celebrating every milestone that you reach. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Dear Nikki Mama podcast. If you loved this episode, we'd be so grateful for a review on any of the podcast platforms. And we'd love to continue connecting with you via our social media pages or a private Facebook group. And ultimately, Nikki Mama, welcome to the sisterhood.